For the rest of you who are here this morning, I'll just give a little introduction to where we're at. If you have Bibles with you this morning, and it would be really encouraging that you do, either physically, like the, the Luddite version, you know, the printed versions. We have some on the back table if you'd like to grab one. Uh, if, you, if you have one on your phone or on a tablet, that'd be good too. We are going to be primarily in a really fascinating passage of Scripture. It's found in Romans chapter 13. And those of you who know your Bibles, you probably are going, uh-oh, I know where this is going. So we're in a two-week series uh, here at the Rock Church that's called, we've titled it Politics. Yes, I'm crazy. The Church and the Christian. And the reason why we do this is kind of threefold. Every summer when uh, we are getting ready to go back into the season of the fall and back to our regular ministry, we do a series like this. And it's kind of twofold main reasons is, number one, we as rocksters, we call ourselves members of the Rock Church, we want to remind ourselves what it means to be the church and what it means to be Christian in this world today. And so it's, it's a recap, it's a reset, a reboot for us. But also every year we have this interesting thing going on in Squamish where people move here, they love Squamish, they out, love the outdoor life, they're young, right? And, and they don't own anything. And then they start having kids and then they're like, we can't afford to live here, right? Yes, you can. Don't move away. But they do, right? Many times over the summer, people move away. And so we send them, and we did a send a couple last Sunday. It's awesome. But also, new people move here and come to be part of our church uh, as we've been growing quite a bit over the last two to three years. And so we want to also do this for you to give you a bit of an insight into what we believe as a church. We have a members class that will be happening in the beginning of October, and we run that every year. But this is just kind of a little bit of a reset about, okay, who are we? What do we think about the church and, and about uh, Christianity and, and doctrine and theology, etc.? And this year, I decided to throw in the word politics just for fun, right? Now, really, I, I mean, come on. We're, we're living in very interesting times, aren't we? Uh, I walk around our cafe during the week. We have a number of skeptics I'll put it this way, outright atheists, uh, unbelievers who are here and are customers of our coffee shop. We love them, and some of them become really good friends, and we have conversations, and they're kind of like, you know, what is with you white evangelical Christians? You know, we're not all white here, which is great, but, you know, and, and politics. And so I, I thought it would be a good idea for us to look at that because we need to have a defense for the truth that lies within us, Amen. We need to know how to respond in our culture today. And I would hope we should know what the relationship between the church and politics is, which we looked at last week, and I will give you a bit of a recap on that, but also what it means to be a Christian in this world today and what our relationship should be with politics. One last reason why we do this. More and more, it seems like in our world today, um, People have a, 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 even Christians, young people who have been raised in Christian homes, raised in the church, have not the best attitude towards the church. They've lost interest. The church has hurt me. The church doesn't live up to my needs, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the reasons why we do this is because we want to make sure that we all understand the church is very precious to someone who died for her. Amen? His name is Jesus Christ. This is his church. It's not mine. It's not ours. It's his we get to be part of it. 
And so that's another reason why we want to do this. So a couple of definitions we looked at last week. I'll put them on screen, and we'll walk through this a little bit as we get to our passage for this morning. But we thought we would define some things. So last week, pardon me, I gave you a brief definition, mostly a Webster's Dictionary definition, slightly modified, of what politics, and it is this. Politics are the activities associated with the governance of a country or an area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. So we looked at that a little bit last week related to the debates that go on. There's there's no real arguments or debates. People aren't taking sides in our world today, are they? Right. And then it's about power, right? Once people get in and then giving up that power, holding on to power. And so then we, after that, we looked at, okay, what's the definition of the church? And that was interesting. The first thing that we established is this. The church is not any man or institution's idea. The church is solely Jesus' idea. That gives me great comfort <laughs> as a church planter, as a pastor. And we learned that in Matthew 16, 18, which is where we actually get our name for our church, is when Jesus first announced to his disciples the idea of church. And he said this in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, right? He asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They at first were saying, well, Elijah, John the Baptist, raised from the dead. And then Jesus personalized and said, no, 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 no. Who do you say that I am? Personal testimony of who Jesus is. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, your testimony of faith in me as to who I really am, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so we saw last week that the word that Jesus uses there in the Greek is the word ekklesia. And it's a fascinating, awesome Greek word. We, we get the word church from really the German translation which, uh, of ecclesia, which is K-I-R-C-H-E, and you can see where we get church from. But in our modern culture today, it's lost all understanding, really, what people think it's a building, it's a place, it's an institution, it's an organization, right? Organized religion. It's not what the word means. The word literally means called out ones. And and most literally stretched out in that culture, they would have understood that word to mean people called out of their homes to a gathering. Because it was a word that was used in culture at that time when people were called to an ecclesia about town hall meetings, uh, where where they would tell people about, you know, new, you know, artesian wells and new waterways and new roads that were going to be built. And all, oh, by the way, new taxes and new laws. People were called to an ecclesia. And Jesus said, I'm going to build one of those but these are going to be my people, my ecclesia. And so also key to understanding the role of the church as it relates to politics, we discovered what Jesus really had in mind. Isn't that important? I mean, here today, many of you are probably from different denominations. My wife and I, we fellowshiped in different denominations, and it seems like everybody has a little bit of a different idea about what the church should be. And we keep asking the question, what did Jesus have in mind? That's a pretty important question. comes down to that, doesn't it? since he is the one who said he would build it. And we came up with this, as short as I can make it, definition of what Jesus had in mind. And it was this. The church today, the ecclesia today, is Jesus's plan A for the redemption and restoration of his creation, whose sole goal is the expansion of the kingdom of God. I'll add to that, not politics. 
Please, anybody amen? Oh, I'm okay. I may not have some believers here yet. So, so what we also discovered last week, the goal for Jesus, and this is controversial for some of us, I think, the goal for Jesus wasn't the church. That wasn't his end goal. He only mentioned the word church three times, and two of the times in the Gospels, it was related to division and sin in the church. No, Jesus' goal always has been his kingdom. It's about his kingdom that he inaugurated when he first came down from being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, literally is here in me. I'm inaugurating it now. And throughout the whole Gospels, throughout the book of Acts, it's all about the expansion of the kingdom of God. And so we learned that there was a really, really important relationship last week between the church and this kingdom thing. And the relationship is this. The church is the vehicle that leads to the expansion of the kingdom. So I want to suggest to you a very positive, important impact on how we, the church and the Christian, perceive our role in the world and society as a whole and in community and politics is based on understanding that well as the church. Because otherwise, we, we can think that church is all about a building, a place, an event, something we come to, check the box on Sunday, and went, I went to church. That's not the church. The church is, if you're a Christian, a believer in Christ, believe that he died on the cross and in, place, in your place for your sins, and he is Lord of your life, you are the church. We are the church. When we're here, when we're out there, we are the church, gathered and scattered into our communities to make Jesus known. So overall, what did we find out last week? What is the role of the church, this vehicle whose goal is the expansion of the kingdom of God? Well, number one, it is Jesus' plan A for the redemption and restoration of the world, not politics. Secondly, the church is a family of missionary servants. That's kind of our tagline as a church. We consider ourselves at the rock a family of missionary servants. And we get that from the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And so we become family because we're in the family of God, in the name of the Son, right? And so we are servants of King Jesus, and we serve him by serving others and then baptizing us into the name of the Holy Spirit. And we are sent ones. We are sent as missionaries into this world in the power of the Holy Spirit by the Father and by Jesus. And that's one of our identities. Lastly, we saw it this way. Based on Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, the church is kind of like this. It's kind of like a school. It's kind of like an incubator. The, the idea of us coming here on Sunday and going into missional community groups, Bible studies throughout the week, is to be equipped, to be trained, to, to, to learn not just good doctrine, but to learn about Jesus and how he modeled the expansion of his kingdom, about the mission and how we're supposed to participate in that. And so it's an incubation process, this vehicle, to help us be kingdom expanders. So those are the things we looked at last week. And so our primary conclusion then from last week was this. A, neither Jesus nor the apostles and the early church ever started any political parties or aligned themselves with any political parties. Go ahead, read them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts. It's not there. In fact, it would appear that they were kind of in opposition to it and were persecuted by politics and by government. B, from our text in Mark 12, which we will consider again today, it is clear that Jesus does acknowledge 
and validate secular human government. However, at the same time, he limits its authority, right? When he said at the end of Mark 12, 13 to 17, he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So there's a hierarchy there. And he set the limits of it right there. So we need to define one more thing today before we can learn about politics and the Christian. What's a Christian? How would we define a Christian? Now, some of you are looking at me going, are you a pastor? Really? Have you read your Bible? Well, I I say that, or I ask that question today. I know it would appear obvious, um, but possibly more than any other time in history, um, we have a very large number of people in North America, anyway, the, the community that I know of, the United States and Canada, an awful lot of people, a very large number of people who are Christian in name. They claim the title, they claim the name of being a Christian. Oh, they don't go to church regularly, they don't read their Bibles regularly, they, they don't necessarily follow the commands of God and the commands of Jesus regularly, but they called themselves Christian. So therefore, let me suggest to you that the best way for us to define what it is to be a Christian today, anytime for that matter, would be to maybe look at the word disciple instead. Like, how many people do you think who who call themselves to be a Christian who say, I'm a Christian publicly, or or, I'm part of the Christian right, or I'm part of the whatever, and, and, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. Sure, I do. I mean, the demons believe in him too, by the way. Just want to put that out there, you know. Uh, how many of those people do you think are going to walk up to someone and say, yes, I'm a Christian, or actually say, actually, I'm a disciple? That kind of changes the, the parameter a bit, doesn't it? It, it kind of changes the bar a bit to say that I'm a disciple. Well, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. You really are a disciple. You'll remember what, that when Jesus began his public ministry, he began preaching about the kingdom of God, was now here in him, and then he immediately started building his church. Some people think that the church started in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Well, in one sense it did, but it really started when Jesus was walking along the shore, and after he'd said, repent for the kingdom of God is here, and he called two men, Peter and Andrew, he said, you guys, follow me. He called them out of their fishing business, out of their lifestyle, out of their homes, out of their, their, their town that they were living in, and said, follow me. And so the definition of a Christian or a disciple is someone who is a follower of Jesus. It's someone who's made a conscious decision to say, I'm not following my own plan for my life. I'm not following the way of the world and the plan that the world has for success and happiness and a joyful and successful life. No, I'm following Jesus. I'm fully following him. And that word actually literally means in the Greek, whenever it's used in the New Testament, the word disciple means learner. It means a perpetual learner of the one that you are following. And in this case, we're speaking about Jesus Christ. But there's one other factor that makes a person a true disciple and a true Christian. It's something called salvation, right? It's something called salvation. We also know that a true disciple or Christian has been saved from their sins by what Jesus has done on the cross and in their place. Not by anything that they've done, how good they've tried to be and say, hey, hey, God, look, I think the bar is here. I think I'm over it. Am I good? 
That's not the gospel. That's not salvation. It's solely on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. They're not perfect, these people who have been saved, who are disciples and Christians. They're not perfect, but they're forgiven people who know that the free gift of salvation that has been given to them now and forevermore makes them sons and daughters of God and citizens of the kingdom of God, and their allegiance is to no one else, no one else but him. There's a definition, I think, of a Christian, a true follower, a disciple, a saved person, and someone who knows they're saved because they know Jesus. So now with that in mind, we're going to have a look at our our text for this week, and similar to last week, attempt to answer this question. One question for today, kind of, although I think many others I'm hoping will be answered. What role, if any, should or can a Christian have in politics and government and really society in general? How should the Christian live in our North American culture under our governments, and what role, if any, should, can we play in the democratic process? I'm sure there are lots of opinions out there. I'm just going to look at the Word of God and kind of put it forward to you and make a few suggestions. And so we're going to have a look at that. So I'm going to read our passage for today. It's from Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to read the passage, and then as our pattern is as a church, we will come back on it and unpack it a little bit. But I'm going to read the first verse first, obviously, and then I'm going to pause for a second. Can I ask you to do something? I'm just going to read it. It won't be on screen. It will be later. I'm going to read the first verse, and I'd like to let you just let that settle. Just let it settle. This is the Word of God, okay? written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome that he was greatly concerned about. He said this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. I think we need to pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this instruction. Thank you for these words. Uh, Father, I do pray that you would help me uh, as I unpack this as I try to open up the the context and and the understanding of this here today. But I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to all of our minds and our hearts, that we would uh, would put put aside our our biases, uh, 
and, and our own colored lenses that we bring to these things, I pray that we would just hear from you. Not from me, but from you. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Now, to begin, I want to make this note that, uh, for you that many common commentators, the people who write a comment, commentaries on the Bible, people that I study, uh, I like to look at a passage, read it, read it, read it, read it, pray over it, come to what I believe the Holy Spirit is telling me this passage is about in context, etc. But then after that, I will go to several commentaries of theologians and writers that I trust. Most pastors do this, by the way. And, and just to make sure that I'm on the right track, right? But also, sometimes you find in there some really good anecdotes and ideas that they bring to the text that you didn't think of. One is that I noticed that many commentators see a, a, a very strong relationship between this passage I just read for you and the passage in Mark chapter 12 that we studied last week. And I got to tell you, I, when I prepared that message last week, I, the Holy Spirit told me to use that passage related to politics and Jesus, and I didn't know about this comparison until this week. So that's kind of interesting. And so some would say, and I tend to agree, that Paul was thinking about what Jesus said in Mark 12 when he wrote this urgent letter to the church in Rome. And so a quick review of that passage in Mark 12 that we looked at last week would be this. We, we saw that in Mark 12 at this point, it's midweek when Jesus is on the way to the cross. So what's happened so far, like it's a Wednesday most likely that this story of them asking him the question about, should we pay taxes to Caesar, right, is, is just a few days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, palm leaves on the street, people singing Hosanna, Hosanna, apparently welping, welcoming their king. That's what they'd hoped. And of course, the Pharisees, they didn't really appreciate this very much. So what they do is they join forces during that week uh, with men who were normally their enemies. This is very interesting. These religious men, these Jewish leaders, they, they joined forces with some guys who were typically their enemies. And these men were called Herodians. And they were of mixed Jewish blood, so they were, they were their enemies because of two reasons. One, they basically were a political party. They were supporters of Herod, of the Roman government, and the whole taxation system. Why? Well, because they thought these guys were doing really good work for the community. They were building roads and waterways and sanitation and new buildings and schools and universities, and, and, and paying taxes is a good thing to these people. But they were also Jews who were unfaithful. They were Jewish blood, but marrying outside of the faith. On and on it goes. And so they thought very highly of Rome, as I said, they saw taxation. The Pharisees, on the other hand, this is interesting, were very religious, hated Caesar, and really hated paying his taxes. And yet, on this day, they partner with these Herodians. So they were more than willing to form this coalition for one purpose, to bring down Jesus. They wanted to bring down Jesus. So they send some of their best young Pharisees to entrap him by asking the simple question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Right? It's, their intention here is to checkmate him. They figure this is the perfect question. There's no way he's going to find a way out of this. If he says to them, um, no, don't pay taxes, well, the Roman centurions that are there are just going to pick him up, treason, take him off, and he's going to be put to death, probably beheaded when, as far as the Pharisees are concerned. But then if he says... Yes, of course you should pay your taxes. Well, then he will lose the people. All these people that were, hail King Jesus, hail, hail. They're now like, crucify him, crucify him, if he said that. And of course, Jesus is too smart for them. 
And so his response is this. He says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? As he holds up the coin. They said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. As I mentioned earlier in his final words here, he makes it clear that human secular governments have a role. And what is due to them should be paid. And at the same time, he establishes this hierarchy that he wants them and you and I to understand. Human government has its place. It has its place and its role. However, I want you to consider this. Just as Tiberius Caesar, whose inscription was actually on that coin, and we learned more about that last week, as he had his image stamped on this denarius, the truth is God has his image stamped on every one of you in this room. Amen? Maybe you don't know that. In Genesis, it tells us that we're all created in the image of God. In your mind, your body, and your soul, the image of God is stamped on you. And this is what Jesus is actually getting at here. It's It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I love the way one commentator put it, and they explained this really well, and I'm going to put it on screen for you. His name is Kentar Hughes. He said this. Jesus was saying this. The coin is from the mint of the Roman Empire, but you are from God's mint. The coin's use is determined by its likeness, and your use is determined by the likeness you bear. He concludes, Jesus' single sentence is certainly the most important political statement ever made. I would agree with him. So Romans 7, uh, 13, pardon me, 1 to 7 is Paul's, I would suggest to you, exposition of what Jesus just said. Here, he's heard about it. He wasn't there, but he's heard about it. He's going, this is what you guys need to hear in Rome because you're under persecution, you're being put to death, and by the same time, you've got other bad attitudes and on. So before we dive in verse by verse and finish up today, I've got I to put out one very important caveat. I, I like doing this just before we get into things, but this is really important before we look at the passage and is this. As I'm sure many of you are aware, the Word of God today is under attack more than ever in our world. It's under attack. Whether what the Scripture teaches us and our world related to our sexual identities, marriage, roles in marriage, roles in the church. Seriously, the last 15, 20, 30 years, people, Christians, theologians, pastors are straining at ways to reinterpret the Scripture so that it's not so offensive, so that it's more inclusive, so that it's more aligned with the way our culture is going. It's tragic. It's tragic. In a similar way, that happens with this very passage here today. And here's how that happens, okay? Every time this passage, and I'll tell you one other thing, most pastors, most preachers won't preach this passage. I'm crazy, right? Now, I'm not braver braver than anybody else, but a lot lot won't. Here's what happens. Almost every time this passage is preached, the pastor, the preacher is going to, I will, is going to get to some points because you're all going to be asking, wait a second, there have got to be some exceptions. Of course there are. But I want to ask you today to be very careful. The exceptions are not the rule. This text has to stand on its own too. It needs to speak to us because it's true. 
It's God's word. So let me put it on screen, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So we'll just verse by verse walk through this, see the general meaning of it, and then we'll try to answer our questions for today. Very challenging, yes? I mean, I read this and I paused, and I'm sure you're looking at it going, excuse me, can we have the exceptions now? This is very challenging. Three things we learn here. It's three things. And we'll put them in, in, our, in our minds as we move forward. Number one, every person, every person, Christian and non, are to be subject to governing authorities. Based on what we read later, this goes well beyond prime ministers and presidents. This goes to anyone who is in a, in a position of governing authority over us. This can mean your boss. This can mean your principal at your school. Anyone who's in governing authority over us. Number two, God, look at this, is above and over every authority and all authority emanates from him. Thirdly, God institutes. You know, we we call marriage an institution, which some people are like, yeah, I don't want to get into that institution. The reason why it's an institution is not because it was instituted by man, by the Pope, by the Catholic Church, by any other church. It's because in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them together, God instituted marriage. That's why we call it an institution, by the way. Same thing with this text is teaching us, states and governments. God institutes, puts those who are in authority over us in these positions. Paul's conclusion is in verse 2, therefore. Anytime you see therefore, it's conclusion. We're moving into that, right? He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Anyone here ever resisted anybody? (laughs) Ever, Ever been part of a resistance, a protest movement? Want to check your Facebook or Twitter feed? Your comments, your replies, just your thoughts, your communication in your home, your friends in a cafe, wherever it might be. Ever resisted? (laughs) Am I the only guilty person here raising his hand? (laughs) Yes, thank you. Of course we have. So let's come back to that a little bit in our conclusion. But let me say this before exceptions start to fly and, and pop through your mind. The Greek language here, it's very important. The Greek language here, let me make this very clear. It is in the present perfect tense, meaning then and now. This is a universal truth. And the reason why I stipulate that is, as an example, an exception that some like to bring up is that Paul was actually writing this letter to the people in Rome because their circumstances were very unique. See, this is exception unbiblical, I'm going to suggest to you, right? He was writing to them because their situation was so unique, and, and it really isn't for today. And he's writing because they were under serious pressure from the Roman rulers, as well as the Jewish leaders, and that these words are for them in that time and that place only. They suggest that he's speaking into the prevailing attitude of the Christians at that time, and he's trying to encourage them to get out of that attitude so that they will be on mission, the mission of expanding the kingdom of God. And and that attitude was they, they were really, really, really taking the idea of being in the world but not of it too seriously. 
Like, they, they were like, oh, government, politics, the marketplace, these people, bad. You know, we need to hunker down. We need to be in secure places, private places, right? I mean, really, it makes it pretty hard to go and make disciples if be ye separate is your mantra, right? Pretty hard to go and make disciples if that is your mantra. So, yes, they were actually doing that, but friends, honestly, today, churches and people do that today, do they not? We're so afraid of the culture, so, like, it's so bad, it's so horrible. We have to be ye separate. That's what Paul's actually writing into, for the most part here. And so, yes, they were actually doing this. Paul's desire is to instruct the church then and today, I want to suggest to you, how we are to act, how we are to be church, be Christians in a world where our governing rulers and authorities and leaders are not leading necessarily in a godly way. How do we do that? That's what he's writing into. That's what he's writing. But he's, he's also saying, you still got to go. You still have to participate. You can't just hunker down and stay away. You need to be salt and light. You need to find a way. And that's what he wants to teach us here today. So his warning is here. If we resist what God has appointed, we will incur his judgment. He then goes on to give some details, which are great. He says, for rulers, look, they're, they're not a terror to good conduct. Well, we could look at some exceptions, <laughs> right? We won't do that right now, okay? We won't do that right now. But to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. So God has instituted human government to provide a way, provide a way of life, laws and rules, as well as programs and services to organize society for a specific purpose. Your and my flourishing. That's why God has instituted anything that he institutes. Marriage, so that we would flourish within a relationship between a husband and a wife. The same with government. Now, ideally, and listen, hear me, I stress the word ideally because we know that no human government will be perfect, amen? God's plan for government is for our good. That's his plan. That's his ideal plan. He's God. He can probably work it out even when it's not very ideal, right? And he's proven that over history, that he does work it out. So God's plan for government is for our good. God, you, actually, Paul uses the word here for God's servant, the word diaconus, which is the same word that we get and we use in the church for deacon, which means servant. Now, wouldn't it be a great idea if most of the people who are going into politics and going into government had the heart of a servant? Actually, you know what? Many do. Many do. Most of you probably watched a funeral a little bit yesterday of a man, a politician, a Republican in the United States of America. The tribute to him more than anything was that he was a servant in war and in peace and in government. But that's the goal. That's what they're supposed to be all about. Now, I'm sure many of you find this challenging, or many of us find this challenging, considering the state of politics in our world today. But let me remind you of this. This is really important. I know. Listen, I get frustrated. I watch the news. I turn it off. Then I turn it back on, right? And I I know it's frustrating. But friends, we need to understand 
The days that Paul is writing into are the days when, when Nero was taking the Christians that were murdered and killed and putting oil on them and lighting them in his garden to be lamps. Do you feel like our days at all compared to that? That's what he's writing into. We have it so tough, don't we? I know that many times people say to me, you know, like seven, eight, four or five, six years ago, people are going, oh, this guy, the president. You know, and I'm like, listen, he's president for four years. He's doing his best. Why don't we just all try to support him? And, and you know, so there was 50% of the people who were like, oh, this guy. And then the other 50% love him, right? And, and now I feel like I have to talk to the other people over the last few years, right? It's like, this fit? Okay, never mind. That was a sidetrack. I shouldn't have gone there. But it's what it is. So these verses actually, I want to suggest to you, show us the role that God has in mind for human secular government. Its primary role is to serve, serve the people while ultimately serving God and his purposes. You see here, God's servant for your good. I think we need to look at that and expect that and assume that and desire that even when it doesn't look like it is because that is God's will. So that's the ideal again, not necessarily what we experience. He also speaks to our response to government here, doesn't he? And even in the face of less than ideal governments, he says this. He says, even in the face of whatever's going on, I've instituted these people. I've put them in power. I have authority over them. Your role? Do good. (laughs) Just focus on doing good. Just do good. Because he then says this, but if you do wrong, be very afraid. Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, and avenger carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also the sake, for the sake of conscience. So here Paul, and I would suggest to you the Holy Spirit, is speaking to the way that we respond when we disagree with those who are in authority over us, or we don't like the one who is our prime minister today, or president today, or four years ago, or whatever. What is our response supposed to look like? Essentially, he's saying this. If you're doing good, keeping the law, not texting while you're driving, right? You've got nothing to worry about. You've got nothing to worry about from those who are in authority over you. But if you do wrong, God has given the state, the government, the responsibility of vengeance. Now, of course, that, that flies against our North American thinking, doesn't it? Even, even to hear that, it's like, what? Like, no, like, I, I want to be the one who repays evil for evil. One chapter, about six or seven verses earlier than this passage, the Apostle Paul also wrote to these Roman Christians and said this, Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do any of you have any problem waiting for that? God's way of dealing with evil is not by personal vengeance, but through justice dispensed by the states that he institutes. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way that we should pray into it, I would suggest. Paul now then describes what our obedience should look like in verses 6 and 7 when he says this, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, 
attending to this very way. Pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So right here is where we obviously find the parallel, the striking similarity to what Jesus said in Mark 12, right? Paul must have heard this, must have understood this. He's expounding on it right here. He's extending it for sure, but biblically and theologically, he's right on with Jesus. The word because here is so important. Because God has instituted government for our good to serve us, but not necessarily in the way that we would like all the time, right? Because God has done that, we are to act like citizens of the kingdom of God while being a part of this world and under the governing authorities that he has instituted. That's what we are to do. We should do this, of course, all these things without grumbling. Yes, we need to pay our higher than U.S. Canadian income taxes and GSTs, and high Squamish property taxes. Yes, we do. And yes, we need to pay our bills on time for services rendered. Yes, we do. But secondly, secondly, this is important. Showing your disrespect and dishonor publicly whether in conversation or online, friends, I suggest to you it does the following. It discredits the one whom you say you're following and love. It discredits him. It's dishonoring to your church, family. And I'll tell you what else. It will destroy your testimony. It will. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Please hear me when I say this. You and I don't get to choose who we respect and who we honor. We're told who we're to respect and honor. We are. Do you think it might be time for a couple of exceptions? There are exceptions. Let me tell you three exceptions that I believe are really important for us to understand. First, Anytime we are asked to violate a direct command of God. Amen? I mean, come on. Seriously? Right? You know, do not murder. <laughs> Many commands. I mean, one of the best examples that I think we can find in, in Acts, when the new church uh, was just starting to expand the kingdom of God, right, is found in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. The apostles are going out and preaching Jesus. They're not only preaching Jesus, they're preaching his death, burial, and resurrection, and you guys killed him. You are the ones who crucified him, but it's okay. It was planned. He's risen from the dead, and he is king. Well, the religious leaders pulled them in and said, you need to stop that. You know, we're going to beat you, put you in jail, but, and you need to stop that. And, of course, the apostles listened to them, right? No. The apostles went right back at it, preaching Jesus, preaching the resurrection, preaching that he was king of the world, Right? They did this repeatedly and repeatedly, and, and, and it got to the point where it was like, you, you've got to stop this. They're called in one more time, threatened again, and their response was this, we must obey God, not man. So that's an exception. But listen, it's, it's an explicit exception to something that is happening to you because you are making Jesus known, you are being a Christian, you are preaching the gospel, you're standing for truth, that's an exception. 
Secondly, Christians must never agree to perform an immoral or illegal act. There are areas of government, there are areas of life where you're actually, you're actually encouraged to cheat, to lie, to, to, to kind of fudge the numbers, to kind of make things look better than they really are. This is an exception. Someone in authority over you um, asks you to do something like that, your answer is, I can't do that. It might require you to leave your job. Thirdly, of course, in areas of Christian conscience, which also kind of relates to number one in God's commands, but my wife Janice is a nurse. If it comes to a day when she is told she must participate in an abortion at the hospital she is at, she will tender her resignation. She has to. She can't participate in that. So there are exceptions. There are really, really serious exceptions. Now, understand those exceptions, but please don't be like the Pharisees and extrapolate them into a million other possibilities because that's what we're really good at. Hear the Word of God about our relationships. So finally, what role? Let me answer the question. If any, can a Christian have in politics and government and really society in general? I have a few suggestions. First, participate. Be ye separate isn't helpful. Participate. Be involved in the conversations, the debates, the electoral process. But remember what we've learned here today. Remember this. Bring the gospel of the kingdom of God to bear on these discussions. Build up those in government rather than tear down. Don't get into that. I know it's not easy. I, I'm your pastor. I'm not perfect. I do that. And I repent of it often when I'm commenting, even if it's just Janice and I in the house watching television going, we need to not be doing that, but we need to participate. Bring the gospel to thee. Secondly, pray for those in government and authority over us. Pray for them. And, and you know what? Don't pray fire and brimstone. Don't pray, Jesus, you must save them before I will like them. <laughs> pray for them. Pray for them. Even whether they know Jesus or not, whether they're Christian or not, that they will realize the Imago Dei that's in them and they will lead in government the way they should. Finally, some of you may be called to be salt and light. Many years ago, I don't want to highlight my story, but I was asked to consider running for a political party in Canada in a relatively uh, safe seat uh, again, I won't mention where. And I got to tell you, it was quite tempting. I was in my early to mid-40s. I was a businessman, doing okay. And I was, at first I was like, yeah, of course I'd be a good politician. I can public speak, you know. You know, the ego just started... And then I started thinking about the pension plan. Have, have you heard? You know, like you win two terms and it was a safe seat that I was going to go in. One of the people that... Um, encouraged me in that as a man who uh, I interviewed one time for a Christian website that a buddy of mine had started, and I had started, and his name is Chuck Strahl. He was a member of parliament uh, with the Reform Party, then the Conservatives in Chilliwack, and I interviewed him, and I said, Chuck, like, what's it like being a Christian in politics? Like, what's that all about? Like, how do you go about that? What do you do? And, and his, his response was awesome. He said to me, he says, Glenn, I'm glad you put it that way because that's all I am. I'm a Christian in politics. I'm not going there to try to create a theocracy and try to turn Christ, uh, uh, Canada into a Christian nation. He said, that would be awesome. He said, but that I want to go there to do good. And here's a man, I don't know if you know him very well, but he's done a lot of good 
in politics. He began a prayer ministry in Ottawa, in the Parliament buildings, that is alive and well today and is like people from all parties come to that prayer meeting. And secondly, he had a lot to do with the Ministry of Reconciliation with the Native people in our country. A lot to do. Many chiefs and First Nations people in our country really love and appreciate Chuck Stroll. So some of you might be called to that. You may, in fact, be called to that. Lastly, let me leave you with this. When it feels like politics and the opposition to the church and Christ are overwhelming, let me remind you of this passage from John chapter 19. Jesus is on trial. He's before Pontius Pilate. The Jews are screaming out at all of the people, crucify him, crucify him. Pontius Pilate wants nothing to do with it. He's like, I, I can't find any guilt in this man. And so he comes back into his headquarters and he says this to Jesus. He asks him, first of all, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Silent. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. No one has authority over you to do anything to you, any harm to you, any harm to us, to our country, unless Jesus went this far to take it. He modeled it for us. Friends, we have a great and mighty king, don't we? We have a great and mighty king. Our sole responsibility is to him and everything that he has commanded us to do. His plan A for this world, for his creation, is the church and the expansion of his kingdom. At the Rock Church, I want to ask you this question. Will you join him and us on that mission here in Squamish, first of all? Pray with me, would you?